Welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. In uh, an earlier episode this year, back in May, we had a guest, Steve Pike. Steve uh, is head of the Urban Islands Project, and uh, he also wrote a book called Next Wave. And in the book, he talks about some of the ways that we need to reset our ideas uh, as it applies to mission when we are thinking in an urban context. So today's uh, episode is a webinar that uh, I uh, hosted back in the month of June uh, with uh, national urban leaders from across Canada. And uh, as uh, you'll hear in the episode, uh, we take some of the ideas that we first heard from Steve a little bit deeper in our exploration of the great reset of mission in the city. I uh, hope you'll uh, enjoy uh, what Steve has to say and that uh, this isn't just uh, theory but this is practical reality of how we approach people in the mission of God. So let's go to the webinar right now. We want to welcome uh, you joining us today. Uh, we have uh, leaders from all across Canada and uh, the title of this session is The Great Reset of Mission in the City. One of the friends of Mission Canada is uh, Steve Pike, uh, who I'll introduce in a moment. Uh, it's fair to say that um, as we look at the needs in Canada, that Mission Canada is really about raising up missionaries to go into Canada, from Canada to Canada into areas that often the church is weaker at reaching. And uh, I'm Kevin Rogers. I'm the uh, Urban Centers Coordinator with Mission Canada. And uh, I'm delighted today to uh, welcome Steve Pike. Uh, Steve Pike uh, is uh, coming to us today from uh, his home in Denver, downtown Denver. And uh, I'll let him tell you a little bit about uh, his organization when, when he starts to talk. Uh, but one, one thing that is certain for all of us as we think about the Canadian church and Canadian cities is that we need help uh, to be able to reach our cities. COVID-19 has given us a window of opportunity uh, in that not being able to uh, be doing the things we would normally be doing in church life. As we return, uh, we are having an opportunity to hit the reset button. I know that uh, when I had an old PC, that sometimes the only way you could get it going was you'd have to shut it off and turn it back on again. <laughs> and it feels a little bit like that's what's been happening to the church uh, around the world. Uh, but uh, while it's been shut off, I believe that uh, the Spirit of God has been uh, helping us all to upgrade our systems and uh, to, to help us to start up again uh, with a freshness, a vitality, 
but we need to we need to learn what's different. We need to know what has to change. So, Steve, welcome, and uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our guests. Uh, I think uh, many have have your book. Uh, I'll just do the shameless plug for you right now. Uh, Steve just wrote Next Wave, and it's discovering the 21st century church. So much good content in here for urban ministry. Thank you for writing this, Steve. And I know it's coming out of the wealth of your experiences. So uh, over to you, Steve. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, man, I am so honored to be with this group of people. I love spending time with um, people who are called by God to urban places because that's what's happened for me. But I got to confess, I feel somewhat inadequate because I'm guessing that some of the people on this call have years of experience beyond what I've experienced directly in urban ministry. So I, I come with humility and, and uh, hope, hope that I can uh, share some things that'll be helpful to people who probably have a lot more experience than I do. What I bring to this conversation is the perspective from uh, before I did what I'm doing now, I, I, I planted a church in Utah, which is a, uh, a, pl a place here in the U.S. that you probably have heard about. And, and most people, when they think of Utah, they think of the Mormon church. And that's because the, it is actually within the U.S. It is the uh, most, it has the highest percentage of people who subscribe to one religious persuasion uh, of any, any uh, state in the U.S. And so it's about 70%, 60 to 70% of the people would identify themselves as members of the LDS church, or at least sympathizers with the LDS, LDS church. The other, the remaining percentage, most of them would identify themselves as very anti-religion. So you're either, if you're going to do ministry in Utah, you're either ministering to you're talking to people who are already identify themselves as something or they are very opposed to any kind of religion so it's it's not the the place that all the church planters are lining up to go <laughs> and that's that was where i uh, that my first church planning experience spent about 10 years there uh, ended up becoming uh, over, overseeing church planning for a region of the U.S. for the Assemblies of God, and then became the national director of the Church Multiplication Network. Well, actually, church planning for the Assemblies, I started Church Multiplication Network as a part of that effort. And so that gave me a vantage point that helped me to, to sort of see what was happening um, on, a, on a big scale. Uh, I wasn't, I, I went from being very local to a more regional perspective, to a national perspective, and having responsibility to think about how does the church multiply into, into every space and every place on this national platform. And one of the things that began to be apparent to me was that um, most of the new church planting efforts, most of the efforts to start the church, new churches in new places, was focused on suburban communities in the U.S., which were uh, uh, again, just the, that, those, those are those ring commute, those communities that surround the urban core of a of a, of a city. Um, and that's where most of the church planning was happening. And it started to trouble me that it, nine out of 10, probably people that I was talking with were going to a place 
that um, was was not urban. And I, you know, I, I, I was excited that they were going to suburbs. We need the church there. But it, it bothered me that people were just not going to the urban neighborhoods because they're, they're, they're either overlooked, neglected, mar marginalized, um, uh, or um, just, you know, for whatever reason, people, people weren't going there. So I started wondering, why aren't people going to the urban? And some of the things during my research that I had to be able, be able to do from that national platform, I was able to see some of the reasons why people weren't going urban. Probably the biggest reason, honestly, was economic. Uh, it, when people started looking at what it was going to take to bring a church into a city neighborhood, um, the conventional model just wouldn't work. And so, you know, many of them would just take a look at that and say, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. And they, they'd go somewhere else. Um, for others, it was just the sheer difficulty of it, the loneliness, feeling like, you know, generally when you're serving in an urban context and you're sort of comparing your metrics to people who are serving in um, other places and other spaces, um, those, those metrics just don't compare. So we had one, one classic example was I was working in a city and there was a large urban church. Well, there was a gathering of all the leaders from that city, that metropolis, including the suburbs. And one of the suburban churches was there and they were, everybody, we went around the circle asking everybody to share their experiences and this uh, of, of Easter, we were just talking, we wanted to celebrate people's Easter uh, experiences, and uh, they reported that they were disappointed because they hoped to have 20,000 at their Easter services, but they only had 15,000 show up, and they were, they were kind of lamenting that, and I think they even told that story even to sort of not be bragging. They were just saying, hey, we're discouraged. You know, it wasn't as much as we could be, but there was another guy there who was working in an urban setting, and uh, he said, well, you know, we, we had a hundred come to our deal. Well, he'd been in his neighborhood for three to four years and they'd never had that many people that they'd been able to connect with. But unfortunately for him, it was, it, it was, it, it just took all the wind out of his sails. He was excited about the hundred until he heard about the 15,000. So there's, there's been this awkwardness of uh, the, the urban leader experience and the suburban leader experience. And again, I'm talking about this in a US context. I don't, I don't know how it works out, how it plays out in, um, in Canada, uh, but that's, that's our experience here. And that's what started making me think, well, you know, we have to have different measurements. We have to have different uh, financial models. Man, we've got to rethink, you know, the idea at, at the time that, that uh, I started this journey, one of the uh, common uh, themes of church, the church growth movement was that in order for your church to be economically viable, you needed to have at least five acres and at least a sanctuary that would see, seat at least two to 300 people. And, you know, right out of the gate, I mean, that isn't going to happen in most city centers or most city neighborhoods, finding five acres that you can afford to buy um, just w was ridiculous. And, and so, you know, there, there were just so many things that were the, that were 
like common sense truisms that applied well in the suburbs, but did not apply in the urban. And so I started saying, man, we got to do something about this. We got to change the story here. We've got to figure out, out a way for it to be possible for more people to go to the city. The model that we, the conventional model wouldn't work. The convention fun, conventional funding model wouldn't work. Conventional metrics wouldn't work. Um, and um, so uh, that, that led me to the point where um, I started in thinking about what's it, what's it gonna take. And, and another thing I realized was cities are really complicated. Uh, the idea you know, that somebody can sort of stand on a platform and say, hey, we're gonna take this city for Jesus Nobody's going to do that. <laughs> Nobody's going to take an entire city for Jesus. But maybe, maybe it might be possible to stand on a street corner somewhere and say, you know what, we're going to make it really difficult for the people within five to six to 10, maybe 15 if, blocks of where I'm standing. We're going to make it hard for them to go to hell. Uh, we don't want them to go to hell. We're going to make it hard for them to do that. And that that's a much more that's a God-sized vision that has a, uh, a focus that people can get their hearts and their brains around instead of thinking you're going to transform this whole city of a million or two million or five million or whatever the city number is, you know, maybe a neighborhood of 15,000 or 10,000 or 25,000, you can start to say, I, I can see where we can make a big difference here. So that, that led me to start this organization called Urban Islands Project. And the, and the idea of urban islands, I've been kind of been applying that, implying that all along, is that cities are like a thousand islands smashed together. When you understand the sociology of a city, you know, all of you that work in cities, you know, you have this, these neighborhood, that's a, it's a real thing. A neighborhood is a real thing. It's got its own personality, its own ethos. That's, it's definitely influenced by the bigger culture of the metro city. It has some of the ambiance and personality of the bigger city, but it also has its own identity that people are aware of. They maybe are not happy about it, depending on the, the neighborhood. Sometimes they're proud of it. Sometimes they're, they wish it was different, but it is what it is. And it's, and it, there's a, a certain level of identity that goes with that. That's really important for church planners to be aware of and to execute to be. To, so anyway, that's why we called what we're doing, Urban Islands Project. And what we do is actually bring together people who are called to urban places as early on as possible in the journey. Um, we prefer talking with people who are just now getting going and uh, just, just even starting to think about maybe God's calling me to a city and help them think about what do you need to go there well. And what we need to go there well is the stuff that we've been that we've discovered over the the last seven years of of leading Urban Islands Project and working with over fifty church planning projects that were focused on urban communities, and um, and we take that knowledge that we've gained and we uh, orient people that are headed toward the city around it. So we help them uh, take the take the the good things that can be learned from uh, conventional. Uh, just a second, sorry, I had a interruption there. Uh, take take things that have been shared from um, uh, that they've learned. We've learned from con conventional church planning, and turn it around and and say, okay, these are the things that we can learn from that. 
and these are the things that aren't going to be helpful, like the funding model and, and the metrics and and the and even just the the startup model. All those things have to be adjusted for urban communities. So that was all going on. We're doing urban thing, and then as Kevin said, in the middle of all that, <laughs> COVID hits, and and it's this opportunity for a huge reset button for everybody. And the good news for us is most of the churches that we've helped start uh, in the urban core were started on a whole different platform in a whole different way. And um, COVID was not as disruptive for them as it could have been because they weren't trying to create this suburban uh, enclave in the middle of a city. So they were, they tend to be simpler. They tend to be more light of fleet of foot and more um, uh, able to adjust and, and, and to change. And so um, we, uh, um, so, so anyway, so that's, so, so COVID was this huge reset button and, and that's what I want to talk with you about today. That's kind of my background. Hopefully I wasn't, I didn't ramble too much there. Uh, but um, I, what I want to talk about now is uh, taking everything that we've learned up to this point from my vantage point with Urban Islands Project, working with 50 churches directly. And now we have an online platform called Next Wave Online plat uh, Community. And now we're working with hundreds of practitioners that are in the hard places and helping them identify the principles that are going to guide them into effective ministry in the 21st century church, because that's kind of where this journey led us. We started realizing culture is birthed, like the general culture in the U.S. at least, and I, I'm, I'm assuming this probably holds true in Canada a little bit. General culture, the, the culture that we all live and breathe, what's what I'm calling the 21st century culture, is kind of born in the cities. It's born where the influencers and the, the people of influence come together, as well as, you know, it's like the city is a mashup of the greatest need and the greatest opportunities and the greatest solutions. And you put all that stuff together and principles emerge that can be helpful everywhere. And truthfully, the 21st century culture is going to become the, the water that we're all swimming in, the air we're all breathing in, in the near future. It's already the case, mostly in urban communities, but it's going to become the case everywhere because of the influence of the urban culture, the 21st century culture through the internet and stuff like that. So the principles, my point is this, the principles that we've discovered in the urban centers um, by, by starting churches in a context that is already the 21st century culture, we're learning things that can be passed on to help people that are not even in urban centers. So um, let's talk about what those are. First thing, I, I just wanna uh, pr provide a foundation today for thinking about like how you're going to respond to this opportunity to reset. And I think there's, I've been suggesting there's three kind of options that we have for resetting ministry for the 21st century post COVID. Uh, the first option is the, the attitude of we're gonna restart. And that attitude is basically saying, we had this big disruption called COVID. It messed everything up for a while, however long that was for you, or man, maybe it still is. And you're anticipating or in the process of, of restarting and restarting implies we're, gonna, we're gonna just do exactly what we were doing before COVID. So the, the, the person, the church, the leaders that are, that are going for the restart 
they're saying, we're just going back to what we were doing before COVID. So everything, we're not going to change a thing. We're just going to start doing it again. And honestly, there's actually quite a bit of momentum for that because people hunger for that. That was a familiar place, something they loved, something they enjoyed. And so it's, it's not actually an, uh, it, it's, it's not a surprise that a lot of leaders are thinking that's the way we want to go. Um, and uh, because they're not only, it's easier for them to think that way, but it's also, there's some pressure coming from the folks that they want to invite back into worship, face-to-face worship experiences. They, they want what they lost. They want to get it back. And so there's a lot of momentum for that. The, the challenge with that approach is that um, because the culture has shifted, because the 21st century culture is becoming the dominant thing, um, restarting is is an option that is only a temporary solution and it's never going to be like it was before and I think that a lot of churches that are just going back and just doing picking up where they left off are going to find themselves being less and less missionally effective in the years to come which is why this is such a great opportunity because we're already disrupted we're already uh, discombobulated and so that's a great time to say, just like Kevin was talking about, we, you know, let's, let's hit the reset button on the computer. And, you know, what happens to a computer, the reason it needs to be reset is because the cache gets all filled up with stuff. And it's just the, the memory systems get all overloaded and you've got to reset it to just sort of clean all that stuff out. And there's all this baggage that's been picked up that is part of what we were doing before COVID that isn't really missional. It isn't really what God's, God wasn't involved in. It was, we were just doing it because it's a tradition that we care about, something we enjoy doing. And so, um, so uh, that's the other two options. So you got the restart. Um, the, the second option I think people are, I see people doing are relaunching. And so that, this attitude now is a little bit more forward thinking. And what it's saying is, okay, there was a lot of stuff we were doing beforehand we should do again, but we have this unique opportunity to reintroduce ourselves to the community where we serve. And we can do that in new and fresh ways. And so a relaunch mentality is, is it, it, it basically looks back and says, okay, what have, what have we been doing that was really effective and really helpful? And let's bring that forward, but maybe let's call it something different. Maybe let's do things at a different time. Uh, relaunching gives you a chance to just pause and say, how do we want to reintroduce ourselves to the community? And for many existing churches, this is really the best option is to say, we're going to relaunch. We're going to come back, but we're not just going to do everything we were doing before without any kind of evaluation. We're going to evaluate everything. We're going to hold it up and look at it and say, is this really helping? What is our mission? What is our purpose? And is this really helping our purpose? And so uh, that's the second option. I think the third option is, is what I call reimagine. And reimagine is when we start with the fundamental question that I think is the right place to start with a new church. And that is not how do we start a church, but how do we make disciples? And so going back, going back again, in the context that you're in, whatever your community, community situation is, upscale, down and out, marginalized, uh, you know, ethnic, whatever the, the uh, personality of that community is, and asking the question, how are disciples best made in this environment? And asking it with a whiteboard in front of you, not, not, tr- not going back to what you were doing, but abandoning what you were doing and saying, 
what do we need to do to make disciples now effectively? What does that look like? What are the rhythms? What are the possibilities? And that opens up the door for new discoveries that you're never going to find if you're just tweaking the old. Now, that it may be that the answer to that question is picking something back up that you were doing before because it was missionally effective. But start with the question that uh, is, how do we make disciples? And then as you start to figure out the answer to that question, um, uh, then, then, then you're going to know what to actually do. So, th so the why is a really important thing. Why does the church exist? Well, it, it, Jesus kind of gave us a clue. He's, he said it's to make disciples. And so um, one of the things that I've, that I've done in the book Next Wave is I've taken 12 elements or aspects of the mission of the church and uh, demonstrated the, the contrast between the 20th century application of that and the 21st century application of that. And so I'm going to take a, just to pick a few of those shifts and, and talk about them because it's really relevant, not relevant to this conversation of what is, what is making disciples? Uh, what does that look like? Um, and how do we fund that? And how do we measure that? So I'm going to just sort of focus on those three. Those are three out of 12. We're going to talk about the shift of disciple making, the shift of funding, and the shift of uh, metrics. Okay. So let, let me begin with the, the and, and Kevin, feel free to interrupt me anytime if I, I'm actually, I'm not sure where I'm at in the time frame here. So, oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, so let me jump into this big one. To me, this is so, 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 so important. And that is um, how the, un, our understanding of disciple making. And in an urban context, this is super important because so many of us are in places where uh, the people we're trying to reach, uh, the people we're trying to introduce to Jesus have no they either have a really negative prior understanding of the church and Jesus is a little tangled up in all of that, or they've never even really heard or met somebody who has an authentic, healthy relationship with Jesus. So you, you're really, when you think about how you make a disciple, so the, one of the problems, one of the limiting factors for our understanding of disciple making is the, the conventional understanding of disciple making. When I ask a pastor, tell me about your disciple making. Uh, uh, strategy. They'll typically say something like, okay, well, first they go through a new believers class, then they go through a gifts class, then they go through a ministry class or something like that. Or they, we get them into a, uh, you know, once they make a profession of faith, we get them into a disciple program. And the common denominator of everything that I hear in a conventional church disciple making deal, the dominant view is that disciple making begins at conversion. But one of the things we started to realize is that if you look at how Jesus made disciples, he was talking to people, he, he started, he called people disciples who had not yet made a profession of faith, uh, that he was the Lord and the Messiah, they hadn't, they hadn't proclaimed any of that. They saw him as a teacher that they wanted to follow. They didn't start out with an understanding, wait, this is, the, this is God in the flesh. And um, I want to surrender my life to him. They, they were willing to follow him uh, because, you know, they felt compelled to do that. But there, it wasn't a salvation thing. So a, a fair question to ask is when do the disciples become Christians? And the answer to that is all over the map. But the common deal is disciple making begins whenever a person of faith 
encounter somebody who isn't yet following Jesus, or a person of faith encounters somebody who's following Jesus and helps them take steps towards growing in Jesus. So disciple making involves, in fact, if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, uh, you know, Jesus comes into this town, all the religious people are super pumped up and excited and they're waving and clapping and Jesus, Jesus, we're happy you're in our town and he's walking down the street. And there's no record that he really did much of anything to acknowledge them. I'm sure he did. But scandalously, in front of everybody, he calls out the worst sinner in town, the person who everybody in town knew did not have a good relationship with God because he was partnering with the Romans to rip them off. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was just a bad guy in, in whatever cultural setting you want to put him in. He's not, he, he's not a good guy. And in front of everybody, Jesus says, I want to have dinner with you, which was kind of the epitome of accepting somebody is to have dinner with them in that culture. And so he invited himself to his house. He went to his house and on his way there or somewhere in, the, in that context of that story, Jesus says, I came to seek and save that which is lost. And in doing so, he proclaimed his, mess, his, his mission. His mission is to seek and save that which is lost. And that by virtue of us being his church, that becomes the mission of the church, seeking and saving that which is lost. And there's the seeking side of disciple making and there's the saving side of disciple making and we like to say the seeking side is that pre-conversion part of disciple making where we're helping people around us our friends our neighbors the people in our community move toward faith in jesus and then there's in the middle of that we we, we say evangelism happens inside of discipleship and then there's the post disciple or the post conversion side of disciple making which is the saving side and that's how people are are growing in grace and the grace and truth of jesus deliberately intentionally and aware that they're doing that on the on the pre-conversion side they're not always aware that they're moving toward jesus at least at the beginning stages and so here's the thing we think that understanding disciple making that way is super helpful especially in an urban context when you then, now you can start to look at your neighbors who are not yet following Jesus and think about you know what do we do to gain connectivity into their lives what do we do to uh, form relationship with these people um, and that that gives us a platform for uh, moving them toward faith in Jesus and we actually have identified four phases of that process that pre-conversion side the the seeking side of disciple making we say there's the awareness phase where people become aware of you in a way that's positive so you know ironically the first step of being a disciple maker is don't or, or making a disciple is don't be a jerk you know don't be somebody who people don't want to be around be somebody be somebody who people are interested in being around uh, that's actually and so you make people aware of you in a positive way and then secondly you, you make connections with people. So they're aware of you and then they feel connected to you. They're connected to you um, uh, through most of the time, some kind of introduction. So, uh, uh, you know, my name is Steve, your name is John, whatever. Uh, and, and so, and what we encourage people to do is learn people's names in a connection environment. So maybe you go to a community meeting of some kind to talk about an issue the community's facing and you meet um, three or four people 
remember their names and pray for them. And at this point, you don't even know their spiritual condition necessarily. Maybe they already are following you. You don't know yet, but just you learn their name and you begin to pray for them. And then uh, as uh, the, the next phase of pre-conversion disciple making, we would say is, is relationship. And that's where you begin to share your story and they begin to share uh, their story. I should say they, you ask them about their story and you share their story. And I see we're almost out of time. So I got to rush it here. Uh, the, the final phase of pre-conversion is, um, is, is the, uh, uh, uh having spiritual conversations, having spiritual conversations. And, and so out of, so the spiritual conversations come out of relationship, which comes out of connection, which comes out of awareness. And then once you're having spiritual conversations, then you have the opportunity to uh, help people make that transition from being somebody who's moving toward Jesus to somebody who's uh, accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior and is growing with Jesus. Now, very quickly, I apologize. I didn't, uh, uh, I, I wasn't uh, tracking on the time as well as I could. Let me give you the, here, so here's the deal. Funding in a, in a urban situation is always a challenge, N never enough money. And one of the reasons that we've had a hard time is because we've been married to this idea that the real church is funded only on tithes and offerings. So we've got to figure out how do we get enough tithes and offerings for the people we're serving to pay for the cost of this church, to pay your salary, the rent, the, the mortgage whatever you've got to pay and that just isn't viable in a city and so you know normally we we help urban uh community churches with outside support through donor so those are two funding streams that have typically been used and a third one that is typically used is uh co-vocational or bible bivocational efforts a lot of you may be bivocational or co-vocational so those are three funding streams that are actually uh have typically been activated what we're encouraging people to do is look beyond those three and move on to two more, which is nonprofit and for-profit funding. So um, you could combine these into what we call social enterprise revenue streams, but you've got to create another revenue stream uh, to help support urban communities. And once you see that as not an exception, but something that can be normal, then opportunities start to make themselves known that you might not have considered before if all you're thinking about is getting more tithe or getting more donors or getting more hours or less hours with higher pay whatever you may be doing to to just increase the funding um these other two two channels or perhaps in canada it might be just one channel social enterprise would be organizations that are nonprofit that that are uh, providing goods and services to the community that are needed like English as second language or after school programs or um, uh, job training programs. Uh, those are examples of nonprofit, you know, uh, kids uh, organizations and things like that. Um, examples of for-profit coffee shops. We actually have a church that's a dance church that we work with in Minneapolis, uh, and they teach people how to dance during the week and they have worship there on the weekends and that kind of stuff. Um, so, the last one is the metrics, and maybe we'll we'll just kind of embed that when we get to the questions and uh, interactive. So I'll go ahead and pause right now and say, Kevin, what questions do we have, or what questions do you have that I can help answer? It seems to me, uh, Steve, that uh, when it comes to um, <clears throat> the proclamation part of the gospel, it used to be that you could 
go from uh, zero to 60 in a very short period of time uh, in terms of being able to move towards that spiritual conversation. Uh, but what we find in our current climate is that there, uh, people are so affected by media and social media. Uh, there's such a disparity between uh, left and right. Uh, I heard Jordan yeah. Peterson uh, a couple years ago on a lecture. He was talking about how, uh, from what they could gather, that uh, about 15% of the population uh, would be either far left or far right. Not 15% at each end, 7 to 8% right, at each, yeah. each end. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I, I'm wondering, though, in, in the shutdown and, and the social unrest that's happening, if those ends are, uh, are growing and the middle is shrinking. So when we think about all of the, the gaslighting that's going on, uh, with media and, and so, social media, we're dealing with an, an inordinate amount of community offense. Yeah. So now it comes back to the disciple of Jesus who says, I'm going to go into my city and I'm going to preach the gospel and make disciples. You did an excellent job of helping us to, to stretch out the timeline and understand that the spiritual conversation uh, sometimes takes takes a while to build to. Um, but can you uh, just help us? How do we confidently speak the truth in love without caving to some kind of uh, timidity of, yeah. well, I'm not actually going to ever say anything. I just hope that you catch my vibe. Or on the other hand, uh, you know, the, there's such a desperation and, and I just got to stand on the corner and I just got to yeah. preach hard. You know, what, yeah. what are the disciples of Jesus needing to do about their communication? How do we need to reset our communication so that we end up in a healthy place, not a reactive yeah. place? Boy, that, <laughs> that is... Uh, that's another book you just uh, we could <laughs> we could write to I, yeah to to give you a concise uh, full full fledged answer just to that just give us some baby possible. steps but but yeah, yeah yeah so I I think number one I think it does start with um, the being aware of of your context because actually I would say that in some places it standing on a street corner and preaching is actually it, a, a right way to engage the culture, but, but you can't, so, so I, I, I don't think we should say we shouldn't do this, I, but I agree with you. I mean, what, what we're seeing is that approach in an increasing number of places is not helpful because it's off-putting. It, 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 uh, it makes people feel like you're, you know, wagging your righteous finger at them or in indignation or something like that. So, yeah. but, but again, so, so here's the thing. The first principle is, you know, what's my context? You know, what what are the things that people um, are uh, afraid of? What are the things that people are, are open to? So, you know, I had an experience. I'll, I'll just give you an illustration of, of how it, it, it this this idea plays out of being aware of your context and adjusting how you communicate and finding that fine line between grace and truth. Uh, well, actually, let me give you the principle. So 
Number one is context. Number two is Holy Spirit empowerment. Okay. Like we have, with all due respect, I mean, I'm, I'm part of the, the USAG. You guys are the Pentecostals of Canada and we believe in the power of the spirit. But, you know, one of the things that happened for me, for me growing up in the AG was I, I got the idea that the purpose of the spirit was to, you know, enable sister so-and-so to give a prophetic word on Sundays in the gathered meeting. And that's certainly part of the deal with, with we, we do believe the Holy Spirit works. And I don't want to demean that or put that down. But what that did was it, it sort of confined in my brain, it was confining the activity of the Holy Spirit to these people who knew how to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, we used to say. And, and, and what I have come to realize is, I mean, Jesus literally said, I'm going to give you the Spirit so you can be witnesses. Yeah. And, and, you know, living in a context where you're, you're sort of the, you're not playing on your home court where most of the people around you are either uh, opposed, anti, apathetic, whatever it may be, man, this, if there's any place you need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it's here and now. And so, you know, be aware of your context and, and you know, pay attention to what, what is effective at helping people move toward Jesus and grow in Jesus. And then secondly, take advantage of the empowerment of the spirit, cultivate the empowerment of the spirit in your life and take advantage of that and expect the spirit to show up in those times, because there's, there's no way that we can be prepared for every little crazy thing that happens. I mean, that's part of the nature of, you know, my wife and I joke, we live right in the heart of Denver, right across the street to the main police station, where during the civil unrest this past year, our neighborhood looked like a war zone out there. There were huge military vehicles and cops and rag gear and people running around throwing stuff. I mean, it's terrifying down here. And, uh, you know, we say, and even without all that going on, we have lots of homeless people living in our neighborhood. Um, just stuff is always going down. And so I, I, you urban people, I feel you. And it's like, you know, even a, a walk with a dog is an adventure and you never know what's going to happen. And so you just, it's impossible to get up every morning and go, well, this is probably going to happen because stuff happens almost every day that you, you can't anticipate. So what I need to do is get up every morning and say, okay, Holy Spirit, I need you. I need your help right now. And, you know, so just, just a quick example of what I'm talking about. I, I was at a homeowners association. I was there as a homeowner where, you know, we're, we, we own a condo in this building. And I went there to you know, process with my neighbors, stuff that we needed to think about together. So I, I went there with a frame of mind that I was there as a homeowner. I wasn't really thinking, hey, I'm here on mission with Jesus, um, which I should have been, but, you know, hey, I'm human. I just wasn't thinking that way. I was concerned about this other issue and I was there. So anyway, the meeting gets done. This lady walks over to me. She says, I hear that you start churches in cities and she's, she's British. That's why I'm mimicking a British accent and her name is Liz. And she, and, and she says, um, you know, uh, I, uh, I, so she said, I hear you start churches in city. I said, well, I, I help people that do that. Well, why do we need more churches in cities? She said, and I said, well, you know, I don't know if you visited any of the churches around here in this neighborhood, but most of them are just really big, beautiful buildings that are empty on Sunday. There's actually not that much going on in far as, as far as church. She said, well, let me ask you a question. What brand of church do you start? And so I thought, oh, that's a weird question. I don't know. I said, what, what brand do you think? What, what are my options? What brands are there? And she said, well, there's the 
the churches that are based in the historicity of the church, and then there's the hater churches. <laughs> so wow. <laughs> and so, so I said, well, uh, I said, we, we start churches that help people walk in the way of Jesus. And she mm. said, well, I've never heard of that. You know, now, oh, honestly, no. honestly, that even that answer, that was a Holy Spirit thing. I hadn't pre-thought that. That just popped into my brain right then. Because I was trying to think of, well, we're not haters and we're really not the traditional thing. So how do I tell her, oh, we're just helping people walk in the way of Jesus. And so she said, oh, I hadn't heard of that. She said, well, let me ask you this. Do you love homosexuals? Now, knowing my context, this room right now around me is filled with people who are homosexual. Um, and she was, Liz was a little drunk. And so she was talking very loudly. And as soon as she asked that question, about half the room looked in my direction. And, you know, boy, the pressure tension went up, but except for me, that was an easy answer. I just said, of course, yes, you know, I didn't have to hesitate. Then she says, yes, but do you agree with what they do? <laughs> <laughs> now everybody leaned in, you know, and this is when the Holy Spirit, you know, moment, this is when, you know, the prayer in the morning made me ready for the question in the evening. And, um, cause I, man, when she asked that question, I thought for a minute and it was like, okay, I gotta, I want to thread the needle of grace and truth right now. Uh, this is important because all my neighbors were listening to me. These are people I I live with. I walk down the hall. I see them every day. How I answer this question is probably going to determine how much I'm going to be able to help them be on mission with Jesus or not. And so it felt, it felt pretty pretty uh, 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 it was it was a moment so anyway I paused to think about the answer and wait for the Holy Spirit to help show up and help me and when I paused she said you paused you're a hater oh no and my friend Rochelle who's an atheist ER doc that I'd already made friends with she had had, had been listening to the conversation she said be quiet Liz I want to hear what he's going to say. <laughs> and that, and every, so the whole room is leaning in and I'm going, holy. And I just said, here's the thing. People's sexuality is complicated. It's personal. It's individual. And Jesus understands all of it. All we try to do is help people move in the direction of, or, or help people follow Jesus. I said, what I think about what people do or don't, uh, you know, for me to decide whether somebody's doing something right or wrong is that's not my job. My job is to help people follow Jesus. Well, that answer was just the right answer in the right moment um, because it opened up. All, people were curious. People started asking me, "Well, you said this. I thought I thought Christians hated homosexuals. Why are you saying, you know, da da da?" So that opened up all kinds of stuff. So that's just an example of what I'm talking about. Um, but maybe this, those two principles are are a simple summary of. And let's write a book together, Kevin. I'm, I bet I'm you got a million of those stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's that's beautiful. I, I take from that. Uh, don't open your mouth unless uh, the spirit is is with you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so, but but then you get into situations where uh, sometimes people want a buttonhole, and yep. uh, and we need the the wisdom. Uh, we need to be wise, like a serpent, gentle like yep. a dove. Yep. Um, so uh, in uh, the Canadian leaders that are uh, on this uh, webinar today, 
we have a question from one of our uh, Bible college uh, teachers. Hi, Graham. Um, his question is, how does more formal training of urban disciple makers, or what does the formal training of urban disciple makers look like? What kind of classes uh, and uh, what kind of mentors? Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe this is something that you're journeying with uh, stateside with, uh, with your Bible colleges. Yes, yes. Oh, man. Great, great, great question. And again, I'm not sure that I'm going to give you the definitive answer, but I have some ideas about this that I think are, are starting to get some traction. And the first thing I would say is uh, one thing, and of course now, formal education is being delivered a lot of different ways. We, we use that used to mean you go to a school somewhere and you, and you live in a dorm and you sit in a classroom. And, and a lot of times those schools were not located in urban environments. And so you're, you're taking somebody out of an urban environment, placing them somewhere that you're isolated from that. So nowadays, obviously with online being an option that, that a lot of education, you know, uh, educational institution are, are using, um, that issue um, is, is less of a, a concern because I think that's a taking somebody out of an urban context and placing them in a place that's not urban to train urban just doesn't, doesn't really make sense to me. Um, but here's the thing. I, I think what we have to ask the question, what is best learned in a classroom environment or in a online training environment or in a you know formal educational environment what is best learned what are the key information what are the, what's the knowledge people need to have that is better acquired through academic pursuit um, you know disciplined learning environments and things like that and then what are the skills and what are the knowledge sets that are best learned in real practice. And I think what I believe is going to be the future of urban, formal urban, urban training is going to be a, 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 the right combination of, of both of those things where you're saying, okay, like for instance, I, I'm, I just barely scratched the surface of funding as one of the issues that is a big issue for urban people. Well, you know, learning about like financial uh, literacy for the planter and even how to train people in your community and finance or literacy, that's probably a great classroom kind of, or a, a formal education kind of a environment where you teach people stuff they need to know about how economies work and all that kind of stuff. That's best learned there. But then the application of that, always taking whatever it is you're learning in that academic thing and then applying it. And the mentors are gonna clearly be people who in environments that are urban, you know, so uh, pairing up, you know, exposing students to uh, making a part of their practical experience, um, going and working with an urban uh, ministry, but making, making sure that it's, you know, not, they're not just moving chairs around or, you know, filling whatever, uh, you know, sorting clothes for the clothes closet and things like that. I mean, they yeah. should, they, they need to do the servant stuff too. So I don't want to, yeah. I'm not saying don't do that, but, um, but making sure one of the keys I think in learning leadership is actually to lead. And so making sure that when they're placed in an urban ministry situation, that that urban leader has something that the person can lead in 
so they can they can work and develop in that so those are just off the yeah. cuff randomized uh, i'd love to have uh, graham reach out to me and let's talk i'd love to know what you're thinking I'd, I'd like to hear your side of that yeah uh we have uh one more question and uh this uh comes from jeremy uh jeremy uh it, it works uh in whistler bc which is a very famous ski resort uh town and um He's asking, are you seeing much or any lag time of the culture created in the city being trans retranslated into suburban or rural environment? Is there is there much lag time there or is is that very short in terms of impact? Um, well, that's a great man, that's a great question. I think there's in, in one sense because of. Uh, everybody's access to the internet, the lag time between the creation of culture and the, uh, you know, people being aware of that and being impacted by it is definitely way shorter than it used to be. I mean, when the only way for information to spread was just through word of mouth and it wasn't, you know, people didn't have phones and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that took a lot longer for, because cities have always been where kind of culture was created, but there was more distinction between city culture and rural culture and suburban culture when the, we didn't have this ubiquitous access to the internet and the entertainment and all the stuff that comes through the internet. So, uh, so on one hand, it's the, the transfer is really quick. Um, but I think there is so like one of the things I've noticed about living in, in the urban environment, like I used to wonder why is it that in America, at least the city centers tend to be liberal politically. And then the, the surrounding communities tend to be um, conservative. And, and so I, I've, now I understand that because city life is just more naturally communal. You know, we, I live in a tiny little condo in a condo building we share the hallway we share the elevators so there's this you're you're just way more aware of your dependency and your your the con connectivity that you have to other people um, whereas in the suburbs um, everybody's got their plot of land they've got a fence around it um, you push a button and drive in your garage you, if you want to avoid your neighbors uh, it's pretty easy to do that in a suburban deal and so the, the suburban, just the actual um, built environment actually supports a more individualistic approach to the world. And the urban supports a more communal approach to the world. And so, but, but that doesn't take away from the fact that most of the prevailing big ideas of culture are being born in that liberal urban context and exported out. I think the ideology is accepted a lot more quickly, but it gets tweaked. It gets the way it gets accepted in these different other environments takes, it takes different forms and it takes a little longer. Be sure to look in our show notes uh, on sidewalkskylinepodcast.com uh, so that you can uh, find out where to order Steve Pike's book, Next Wave. Also, you can check out his websites and activities that he's involved in. Well, it's uh, September 1st, as this one airs, and on September 20th, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has called for a federal election. And uh, 
Canadian politics are so different from uh, the American counterparts. And uh, the churches uh, in, in Canada uh, are able to encourage people to vote, but we're not encouraged to pick one party and promote that as a church. And that has something to do with our charitable status with the Canadian Revenue Agency. So anyways, uh, with all that being said, I thought our next episode it would be good to go political. And uh, September 15th, our next episode will feature Tim Schindel, uh, who's the Executive Director of Leading Influence. Leading Influence is a ministry that uh, is at Queen's Park and other provincial uh, houses of parliament. Uh, in, uh, I believe there are six chaplains that he oversees. And chaplains who, uh, in a nonpartisan way, come alongside the members of parliament in provincial legislature to offer uh, spiritual care. And uh, so he's gonna have um, some of his team with, with us on the podcast. And uh, one of the things that we can all do as we're approaching an election is is to pray uh, in some specific ways. So we'll be talking about that on the next podcast. So come back and uh, enjoy uh, all of these great ideas that you're being exposed to through Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. See you again soon.